All right, if you have a Bible, which you should, hopefully you have an app, something like that, you can open up to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel, chapter 1. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put it up on the screen. But again, I'm encouraging everybody, bring a Bible, use the Bible that you have. We oscillate sort of between the New Living Translation and the English Standard Version. Those are the two versions I typically use on Sundays, uh, kind of just depending on the narrative and how fast we're trying to move forward in it is kind of what causes me to choose one over the other. But it's great for you to see things in your version as well. Now, to understand really quick here what we're getting into with Daniel, you have to go back to what we learned last week, right? So last week we learned the story of David, Goliath, and Saul. Right? Daniel's story actually kind of has its, its roots way back there. Because what you have way back there is you had the first king who was Saul, and you had the second king who was David, the third king who was Solomon, but then after Solomon, people, you know, not that they were ever really great in Israel to begin with, but boy, they get pretty gnarly, pretty feisty with one another, and the nation, the kingdom, is divided. Right? So you have Israel and you have Judah. You have ten tribes go this way, two tribes go that way, and there's just perpetual friction after that. And you have some seasons where you have a good king that wants to honor God, but it seems like more often than not you have a bad king that wants to worship idols, and he doesn't worship the one true God, and does his own thing in his own way, and it brings God's... uh, wrath, frustration, brings God's judgment to the people in these varying ways, right? That's sort of the cycle that begins to happen throughout the nation. But finally, it gets to a point after King Josiah in Judah where God says, you know what, enough's enough, right? Josiah was a good king that loved God and did the right thing in the right way, and he tore down the idols and wanted people to worship God, and they sort of did for that season, but once he dies, it's just king after king after king after king that's sinful and idolatrous and doesn't love what God loves. And so that goes on with this cycle until the third year of one of those last kings, And in that particular season, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And so you imagine the scene. God established Israel to be a light to the nations, right? God wants Israel to show people who God really is, what God really seeks, what God really expects, and how God really saves in grace. That's what they're supposed to do. And the city of Jerusalem is like the monolith to that. Right? It's this city of declaration to truth, to worship, to God's presence. But it has fallen into sin, and now, now therefore, it's going to fall into ruin. Right? There's just going to be this complete assault on the city. And so when Nebuchadnezzar comes for 18 months, they are closed away, starved out. It's just a horrendous scene. Right? In fact, if you read the book of Lamentations, you'll get a sense of what was going on. You read some of Jeremiah, you'll get a sense of what was going on. It was a hideous, hideous scene, right? And you go, what drove that? It's when God's people stop putting God first. That's it. Were they really that atrocious? Well, the problem was they knew better. But they weren't doing what they knew they should do. And so the great city falls to ruin. And the purpose of the city, which is truth, is overrun by idols. 
and the people are broken and aimless. And then on August 14th, 586 B.C., we see something that verse 2 speaks of. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over the king and over Judah. Gave him victory. Now, what I think is interesting about this is we can look at that and say, oh, so that was a military problem. No, that was a theological problem. Because look what it says. The Lord gave the victory. Right? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't roll in all high and mighty and strong and has a better army and that's how he does it. No, he's, he's a sinful guy. He's a pagan guy. He's an idolatrous guy. The difference is Nebuchadnezzar isn't even as sinful as Israel. So God says, I am giving Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. I am giving Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. And he's doing this not because he doesn't love the people of Israel. He does love them, but he has to spank them to get their attention. Right? Because they love their idols too much. They love themselves too much. They love all the other things more than God. And so God is so faithful to his people, he'll bring ruin to his own house and his own city to eventually reclaim them. And so God brings victory to Nebuchadnezzar. And then it says, he permitted him also to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon and placed them in the treasure house of his God. I mean, this is a pretty gnarly scene right here. I mean, if I modernized it for you, and you have to understand this to get where we're going with Daniel. If I modernized it, imagine... Here, in a couple of years, that we go to war with China. And China lays siege to the United States for about 18 months, and finally they make it to Washington, D.C., and they seize the capital. And so we lose to China. And in the process of that, they go into the White House, go into the Oval Office, and they take the desk of the president. Right? They're going to take something from the executive branch. And then they go and they take the seat of the Speaker of the House, And then they go and they take the gavel of the Supreme Court. And then they go down to the mall and they take the star-spangled banner, that original flag. They take Lincoln's Bible. They take the original Declaration of Independence. They take all of these items that we treasure as a nation, that are basically our, our sacred relics. These godless, communistic people take them all, back to China, and they put them in the National Museum of China as spoils of war, not as artifacts of history, but to make the point that we won, you lost, they're ours. All things that you thought were granted by God are now ours, and we don't like your God, nor your system of government. That's a pretty fair parallel to what happens at the fall of Jerusalem. And you have to understand that if you're going to understand then what happens with Daniel, because this is the life that Daniel is thrust into. In fact, in verse 3, it says, Then the king ordered his chief of staff to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families as well, who have been brought to Babylon as captives. He says, Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning and gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. So again, you keep the scene modern, right? China wins. There, the leadership in China says, you know what? Bring us Bo and Hunter Biden. And bring us those Rubio boys. 
because we need them here in, in, in the great city because uh, we, we have plans for them. See, that's the scene that's going on. So your, your nation is ravaged, ruined, destroyed. Your sacred things are peeled off and then you're taken to that country so you can serve it. That's a pretty difficult situation. So this is Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, or Michelle, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from all the tribe of Judah. And then the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names, Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now here's what's interesting about these names. We just kind of look at them and go, wow, those are like multi-syllable, hard to pronounce. What do we do with that? Now, all those names mean something. Their original Hebrew names meant something, right? Daniel's name is God is my judge. These other names, Yahweh is gracious. Who is God but is God? Or Yahweh will help. These are each of the four names. That's what their names meant. And they all talked about God. They all talked about Yahweh. They all lifted up the Lord. So you know what the Babylonians did? They said, let's rename them with the names of our gods, And so that's all they did. Belshazzar is Bel, the God, protects his life. Daniel's name used to be God is my judge, and now his name is some pagan idol protects my life. Others, like Shadrach means commanded of a coup, one of the gods of the Babylonians. Right? Meshach, who is a coup is who a coup is. Brilliant, right? Abednego. Servant of Nebo. So what you have at the get-go is your nation's gone, your city's destroyed, your holy of holies is ruptured, all the goods are taken to Babylon, you're taken to Babylon, and then they force you to have a name that worships an idol or a god because the whole motivation is how can we dethrone God from these four men's lives, these four Young men. I mean, they're like teenagers. How can we take God out? That's the motive. And while the Babylonians can strip God from their names, they cannot strip God from their hearts. No matter how they try. But they're going to try. And it's not going to be always the easiest process. Verse 4. Then the king says, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. They would be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So what is this? It's indoctrination, isn't it? I mean, just keep stacking it up. So, you're taken to China. You're going to serve the Chinese. They're going to put you in a Chinese school for three years, and they're going to give you a Chinese name. That doesn't sound very fun. But that's what these guys are facing, right? So they're going to learn all the language and all the literature of Babylon. And that's a lot of stuff. I mean, this is the ultimate liberal arts degree from the most liberal institution on the planet. That's what they're getting. They're going to be trained in history, language, law, math, economics, fables, arts, systematized superstition, you name it. They're going to have to do it. They're going to have to learn all of this stuff because, again, the purpose is to imprint Babylon into the heart of these four men. And I was thinking about this. I thought, man, as parents, uh, when we send our kids off to college, how we get freaked out sometimes. Right? And like, that's freaky there. Nothing more profound than that. And think about when that happens, too. 
I mean, how we want to try to insulate that as Christian parents, we're like, oh man, you're going to go off to whatever the school is, and, and the more liberal, the more freaked out we get as parents. And so, you know, what we do, we, we start, okay, I got I to gotta make sure I give them all the arguments going in. I need to make sure they, they understand all the risks and all the dangers and all the fears, and I'm going to make sure they know the worst things that can happen if they succumb. Here's more rules, and here's more laws, and here's more stuff. Trying to be compelling. But what I realize is, you know what? You will never be able to beat the arguments they'll hear away at school. Because you have to get up and live life and do things and work. Their professors spend all day just thinking about their arguments. That's what professors do. What do you do? I think. And write on sabbatical. Right? That's what they do. Right? So you're never going to be able to outsmart your kid's professor. Not, not because you're not smart and they're too smart. It's just they have more time than you to build their arguments. And then your kid sits in class and pays money to hear it. That's awesome. But, but here is the big lesson, right? These guys are going to be indoctrinated, man. They're going big time into that school. But here's the thing. Here's the way you deal with a compelling argument. You have a more compelling God. And what I'm saying about that is not to say, you know what, hey, we're just going to be a bunch of ignorant Christians that try to not ever look at anything in the modern world as though it has some validity. I'm not talking about that at all. But what I'm saying is, if you present to your kids as they're growing up a compelling God, a God that you hunger for, a God that you desire, a God that you want, a God that meets your need, a God that is always there for you and you know Him personally and intimately, that is more compelling than anything else because you filled the void. But if you just rear your kids under rules and laws and religions and systems, and here's our creed and our code, and I'm going to give you all the apologetic arguments, but they don't know their God, then they won't care. They just won't care. There's not going to be anything internal to them that holds them sway. Why wouldn't they want to rebel? Why wouldn't they want to absorb whatever comes their way? I will always bring it back to the exact same thing. And this is going to be the key to these young men right here. They know their God. So it doesn't matter what else comes their way. They know their God so profoundly and poignantly that they can even interact with the material. They can even use some of it for good purposes. They're not freaking out like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 I'm not listening. They don't do that. They don't go to school and just scoff the whole time. No, we're going to see that they utilize a lot of what they learn, but they know their God. They desire their God. They're hungry for their God. And because of that, God rewards them as they're in this very complicated system. It says, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. Well, why? Well, if you can read a book and understand it, you can pretty much learn anything, Right? So they can pretty much learn anything. And it says, And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. Now you have to understand, in Israel's history, at that particular time, that wasn't going to be very popular. For Daniel to be able to interpret dreams means he's really going to serve the Babylonians because they love dreams. They love the interpretation of dreams. They believe their gods speak to their kings through dreams. And so it would be awesome to have a guy on staff that can interpret what a false god is telling their king, Right? And Jews are going to be like, whoa, wait a minute. What does Daniel do for a living? 
interprets dreams for Babylonian kings. Whoa, 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 whoa. So secular. Honestly, Daniel would have been seen as a pretty secular guy. He's helping out the opposition. He's serving in their court. He's helping them understand where things are going. But God gives him that ability. See, that's what's so great about the story of Daniel. Daniel, again, is a guy that's thrust into an environment that is difficult to interact with. But he's going to be faithful in what God has called him to do. And so he has this aptitude, he has this ability, it's given by God. And finally, there is the final exam. Verse 18, when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice that the, the, they go back to Hebrew names here. They, they never lost that in their heart. Their names may be different to the Babylonians, but they've never lost that in their heart. And the king's impressed. So they entered the royal service. And whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians or enchanters in his entire kingdom. So here's these four nice Jewish boys ruptured from their home, forced into a school they want to go to, learning things they're not interested in. And then the king goes, wow, those guys are awesome. See, God is going to use them in a foreign land under foreign conditions for his purposes. See, this is what I love so much about the story of Daniel. Even though it's a pagan environment, even though it's difficult. And I think there's tremendous value in understanding this because as Christians, we know so often that there are different ways that we can engage our culture. I think the United States is way more like Babylon than it's not like Babylon. And I don't say that in some flippant way. I'm just saying it's kind of a melting pot. It's got a lot of different ideals, a lot of different religious systems all in play, which is very much like Babylon. And so as Christians, we have to kind of go, okay, how do I approach culture then? Because there's three ways we do it. We either are against culture, we're for culture, or we're in culture. Right? Those are pretty much the three ways you see it played out. And so we have to kind of then figure out, well, how do I do this? Well, some people say, hey, well, remember what the Bible says, in the world but not of the world. You ready? The Bible doesn't say that. You're like, Duh. comes close, but it doesn't quite say it that way. John 17, verse 11, bolted with verse 16, somewhat says that. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but, but they are in the world. That's his disciples. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we go, oh, okay, there it is, there it is. We're supposed to be in the world, but, but not of the world. Well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, how does that play? How do you engage? Well, I love what Jesus says also in John 17. He says to God, I do not ask that you take them, his disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, right, to engage, to participate in some way with. Which means, first off, it means for the Christian, our, our, our attitude, response is not to be against it, right? We said you can be against, or it can be for, or it can be in. And my thing is, don't be against the world, Right? Don't go say, ah, you know what, we're, we're going to sell it all, we're going to move into a cabin, we're going to churn our own butter, we're going to, you know, like, don't, don't do that. Say, I'm not going to, don't just get out of it. But at the same time, it doesn't mean, well, you know, I have to actually go work in it, but I resent it, I'm critical of it, I don't like it, I can't stand these unbelieving people. That's the heart of being against. 
where you just look at your culture and you say, it's just a giant burn pile and I'm bringing the s'mores. I can't wait for it to go up. Right? We don't want that attitude not to be against. Same time, we don't want to over-rotate and be for the world. Where we trust the idols more, we love its philosophy more, we promote its principles more, we want its future more. Where we take this book and we downplay it because it's just too naive. And then we take all the stuff of the world and we upplay those things because they're more sophisticated and rounded. We don't want to do that. Right? So we don't want to be against, but we don't want to be for. What we want to be is, again, that word in. In the world. For the glory of God, by the grace of God, for the good of our city. Right? That's our mission statement. It's because we want to be in. We want to be engaging the world thoughtfully as missional theologians where we know we have the one truth that can change everything. So we're not just hanging out going, oh man, it's going to burn, it's going to go to hell, I'm glad. But we know we have what it needs. And so we get into it. We get into the muck. We get into the mire. We bring transformation through being useful and compelling and creative and living for Jesus. In fact, on the way out to Babylon from Israel, God told Jeremiah to tell the people this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives to your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on his behalf for its welfare, welfare will be your welfare. So God says, when you go to Babylon, yeah, it's going to be idolatrous and pagan and all of that. But you know what? Do good for the city. Bless the people. Love the culture. Do right things in right ways for my glory. That's what God asks of them and of us. In fact, Jesus said it this way, and it is the weirdest thing. You're going to all day, you're going to be thinking about this verse. I don't even know what to do with this. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 9. Jesus says, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your earthly possessions are gone, they, the possessions that you use for God's glory and gospel, will welcome you into an eternal home. Right? He's literally saying, use what you have here for my purposes. Use everything that you have at your disposal to win friends and influence people on this planet. Be faithful in those little things, and then God will make you faithful in many things. He says in that, now don't fall in love with this stuff. Don't start worshiping it over God, right? You can't worship God and money. You can't do that. So you you leverage all of that for this. It's where you're in. Not against, not for, but in. And that's a very fine line because it doesn't mean that you're running around saying, I'm a Christian whatever. I'm a Christian lawyer. I'm a Christian doctor. I'm a Christian handyman. I'm a Christian window washer. I'm a Christian secretary. I'm a Christian stay-at-home mom. It's not so much you have to tag Christian onto the front of everything. If anything, what it means is be whatever you are, but do it in an intentional Christian fashion. Just be intentional about your faith. That's what God is getting at. Using your skills, your gifts, your stuff in the world to change the world. See, that's what Daniel's going to do. That's what his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are going to do. They're going to use it for God's glory. 
The question is, what do you do when you have a situation where conviction and culture clashes? Right? Where there's that moment where the world says, well, if you're going to be in us, then you have to be of us. And we're asking you, mandating that you do something against your convictions or against Christ. What do you do then? Well, this is something that Daniel and his friends face early on, while they're at school, in fact, right? So during that three-year cycle, they're at school, and there's this situation that happens. In Daniel chapter 1, verses 5 and 8, it says, The king assigned to them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchen. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the, ch- the chief of staff for permission to not eat these unacceptable foods. This is what he does. Now, here's what I love about this. All right, you already start to learn some things about the disposition of Daniel that helps us. Like, what do you do then? What do you do when your convictions or conscience is up against culture? Well, notice the first thing in that verse. You see uh, this, this principle of tone. All right, do you notice the tone? Daniel doesn't take a stand. He makes a request. There's great wisdom in how Daniel handles this whole scene. Are you going to storm right in and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We're Jewish. That meat is sacrificed to idols and it still has blood in it. And our law says no. And that wine is usually offered to an idol as well. And we're not drinking it. No, we're sitting down doing a sit-in, no food. He could have done that. But instead, he has this right tone where he says, I'm just going to make a request. The other thing about this is you see a certain level of tact on his heart. Uh, he, he, he doesn't make it a public issue. He makes it a private thing. He just goes to the guy and says, hey, can we talk about this? Not everything has to be an issue. Not everything has to be an uproar, right? Great wisdom. It says in verse 9, Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. So Daniel spoke with the attendant in charge. And he says, please test us for ten days on the diet of vegetables and water. Right? At the end of the ten days, see how we look compared to the other young men eating at the king's table. Then make your decision in light of what you see. So the attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for ten days. A third principle, not only tone, tact, but also thoughtfulness comes out here. See, Daniel doesn't just state the problem, but then he comes in with a pretty logical and understandable solution. He doesn't just roll in and say, we're against your food. In fact, at this point, he's not even made the issue of idolatry and the law the big thing. That's the thing for him. That's the thing for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he's kind of taken this to just a dietary thing, kind of functionally. And said, hey, I I got an idea. What if we tried this? It's easy just to protest without solution, but he seeks to be thoughtful in his approach. And then the fourth principle you see is that he trusts. He trusts the attendant to be objective because he says, hey man, how about we do this and then you tell me what you think after 10 days. So he trusts the attendant that again, he's just going to be reasonable in trying this out. But he also trusts God to prove his point. Right? So he doesn't flail, he doesn't yell, he doesn't demand, he doesn't stomp, he doesn't do anything. He's just sensible. Reminds me of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, For the Lord's sake, respect all human authority, whether king is the head of the state or the officials that he has appointed. For the king has set them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that you live honorable lives. Right? And by that you silence these ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. He says, You are free. Yes, you are. 
yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone. Love your Christian brother and sister. Fear God and respect the king. This is so reminiscent of what Daniel did. He says, I'm just going gonna, gonna to use my position to be gracious, to have right tone, tact, thoughtfulness, and trust. That's how we're supposed to interact. And so what's the end result? At the end of the ten days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God works it out. God works it out. And I love this because, again, this sets the stage for how Daniel's going to make a lot of decisions in life. He's going to simply go, all right, God, how, how do I really do this in a way that honors you, obeys your law, but also helps the city? How am I going to do this in such a way where I'm a foreigner in a strange land with strange laws and strange rules, and I've got to figure out how to interact with that but not sin against you? He's constantly laboring to that end. It's never this cut and dry thing except in very particular circumstances, and even then his tone is so good. It's so generous. And so this is how Daniel's going to live his life. He's going to live it that way for a long time. In fact, you have to understand, here's what happens. Daniel's this late teenage boy when this all happens. And then he serves these pagan kings for decades. For decades, right? Serves Nebuchadnezzar for decades. Starts serving Belshazzar. I mean, just serves these pagan kings. And with every step of the way, they admire him. They respect him. They appreciate him. Even when he says things they don't like, in the end, God spins those guys around and go, Oh, yeah, okay, I got it. Because he figures out how to live in the tension. And so he is faithful to God in a godless government. And eventually that government so godless, you know what happens? It falls. It falls. The Babylonian Empire, while Daniel is a part of serving that empire, it falls to the Medes. So the Medes come in, they wipe it out, they take control. And so then you get to Daniel chapter 6. So you can go to Daniel chapter 6. That's where we pick up the story of this morning. But you kind of have to understand the lead-in, right? Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Daniel's now maybe late 70s, early 80s, right? So under Nebuchadnezzar, he was a teenager. Now, he's working for Darius the Mede, right? And he's in his late 70s, early 80s. And Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province, The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests, i.e. collect taxes. That's really all that means, all right? Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. I mean, that just blows my mind right there, right? So here's this Hebrew noble that becomes then a Babylonian advisor, and now is a Mede administrator. So now it's like the Mideast invades China, right? Like in our original analogy, now it's like suddenly all these dudes with turbans are in charge, and you're like, okay, whatever. I used to live in the U.S., and I live in China, and now it's controlled by like the Middle East. All right, whatever. I'll just keep serving. That's what Daniel does. Daniel has this incredible ability given by God to work in the environment that God has placed him in, and in that, God will use him for great things. And so that's our guy. 
I love it. And as he goes through all this, notice something about Daniel you never see. You never see where Daniel gets bitter. He complains, brings this resistant attitude. He keeps thinking like, oh man, I'm just going to bring influence. He doesn't get fixated on the conditions. He just walks with God and does his calling outside of what the conditions are. Because they keep radically changing. He just keeps doing the right thing. He doesn't get absorbed in all that other stuff. Well, not everybody loves him. Verse 4. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Right? So they're like, oh, come on, this guy has been in power for years. There's got to be some personal or professional error that he's made. There's got to be some corruption or negligence in his past. They're digging around. They're trying to find something. And they just can't find anything on this guy. So in verse 5, it says, They concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. You must be a pretty studly person when they go, we can only bust you in accordance with your faith. Right? There's like nothing else. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm a pastor, but I'm sure you can find something in my life. You're like, ah, that wasn't the brightest move. But they can't find anything with Daniel. What I love about verse 5, right? They couldn't find any grounds except something connected to his religion. A few things stick out to me. The first is this. Daniel was very open about his faith. Very open. No, you don't look at Daniel like, well, he, you know, he was a Christian guy, but he didn't really wear it out there. It wasn't very public. No, it was so public that they all knew. Right? 120 guys go, you know, man, that guy is really committed to his God. That, that, that God of that wrecked out building back over there in the land of Israel. Right? He's, he's radically committed. He's open about his faith. And the opponents are going to bank on that. They're going to come up with a plan that if Daniel uh, succumbs, uh, he's only going to be held in higher esteem by the king. If Daniel caves to what they're plotting, he'll only get more power. And these guys don't want Daniel to have power. So they're, they're really certain about their plan because they are so certain about his faith. And I look at that and go, man, that is what God needs from his people. He needs his people to be out there in the real world doing real world things, interacting for the good of their city, community, state, or government, whatever it is, doing that, but very open and upfront and obvious about their faith. Because everybody knows Daniel's faith. Everybody does. And these guys are depending on his faith to hold him through this. So, it says in verse 6, The administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius! We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors. Boy, there's a lot of different people. That is a bureaucratic government right there. That the king should always make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. Now, slow down and look at this for a second, because, again, it's going to set the stage for something. I want you to look at the law. The law was that everybody was to pray to the king. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. 
That doesn't mean that you're praying to the king as though he's a god. The Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians rejected the idea that their kings were gods. They did not believe that. When Nebuchadnezzar builds his big statue, it's not a statue of Nebuchadnezzar as a god. It is a statue of Nebuchadnezzar's god. Nobody thought Babylonian or Persian or Mede kings were gods. So this law isn't necessarily designed for them to pray to Darius as though Darius is a god who's going to do certain things. The idea is that Darius will be like a high priest. He will mediate the prayers between the people and whatever gods they are praying to. So that's the first thing, right? He's just going to be a mediator. And, and not just for any long length of time. It says for how long? 30 days. When you start thinking, oh, poor Daniel, there was this law that said he could never pray again. That's not what it says. Or that poor Daniel had to pray to a, a false god. That's not what it, it was going down either. All this really was, was all right, for 30 days, this new king with all of his new officials will act as a mediary between all of them and all their different gods. Which means then for Daniel, what he could do is one of a couple of things. One is he could take his prayer, write it out, give it to Darius, and Darius would just read it to Yahweh. That's what he could do. Another thing is it's only 30 days. Right? So, conceivably, Daniel could say, you know what, for 30 days, I'll just close the window, hide out in the back of my house, and I'll just pray, and nobody will know. It's just 30 days. It's not years. But boy, the consequence is pretty severe for what happens. If you don't do this, you're thrown to the lion's den. Now, that doesn't mean automatically you're executed. It means you go into the lion's den. Now, if you can live through that, hey, cool. Probably not, all right? But that's what he's facing. What I love about this, after this is signed into the law, 30 days, here's how we're going to do it. It says in verse 10, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. And he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done. What's great about this is he doesn't protest it and he doesn't privatize for 30 days just shut the doors. Notice the key phrases. As usual, as he had always done. Daniel didn't do anything different. Right? He's like, I've been here now for 65 years. Every day, I pray three times a day. I open my doors. I face toward Jerusalem. Why would I do it different today? Because it's what I do. It's the God I rely on. All the blessings that all these rulers have had from my life and my experience and my uh, you know, sense of skills have all come from this God I pray to continually. And so he doesn't change a thing. He went up and he prayed three times a day, just like every day. But here's the cool part. This is the part I love about the story. Notice what he prayed. It says giving thanks to God. So you put yourself in the scene. You've been faithful to God. You're elderly. A new king is in charge. This law has been decreed. You're supposed to follow it. You find out if you break it, you're probably going to die. You do it anyway. And what is your first prayer? Thankfulness. Would that be your first prayer? My first prayer would be... Um, I don't want to die, right? 
My first prayer would be, change the heart of the king. My first prayer would be, get me out of this circumstance. My first prayer would be, this is so unfair. God, bring judgment, rain down hail and fire. These godless people, all of them, take us back to Jerusalem. But that's not Daniel's prayer. It is thankfulness. Right? And if there's any big idea, that's the big idea. Choose thankfulness. Don't just chase it. We chase thankfulness so often. We chase things to do things to make us thankful. That's not Daniel. In the midst of the worst circumstance, he's thankful. I love that about him. It reminds me of Paul, what he says in Philippians chapter 4. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. I mean, Paul's in prison. People are bringing affliction to his imprisonment. Other people are stabbing him in the back. And you know what he says? Rejoice. Rejoice. Be thankful to God. You know what thankfulness is and joy is? It's Christian defiance. This world wants to beat you down, crush you underfoot, be a drag, and you want to fight that, you want to resist that, you want to really have a revolution, just be joyful in the world. Rejoice no matter what the circumstance. That'll do it. I love that about Paul. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Just think about that. Rejoice in the Lord. Verse, verses, replay your problems. Rejoice in the Lord, verses, reflect on your losses. Rejoice in the Lord, verses, regret your decisions. Rejoice in the Lord, verses, resent your foes, your spouse, your kids, or your parents. Rejoice in the Lord, verses, revolt against perceived or actual injustices. Rejoice in the Lord, verses, regress into self-pity and discontentment. Rejoice in the Lord, just choose that. You go, but I don't feel it. Of course you don't feel it if you're not seeking it. You have to seek it. This is why Paul says, let everyone see that you are considerate and all that you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Right? Instead of getting all anxious and worried and frustrated and angry and bitter, he says, just take all of that and pray. Just pray, right? Go to God. Seek God. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all that He has done. What's the result then? You experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. If you just choose thankfulness, if you just pray on every occasion you are tempted to become angry, bitter, or regretful, you know what's going to happen? God shows up. Peace is not, I said this earlier in the series, peace is not the absence of conflict or strife. Peace is the presence of God. And you're never going to have peace if you don't pursue presence. You're going to chase things that make you thankful. And I guarantee something that makes you thankful today will make you angry tomorrow. Because remember, you were engaged once and it was all roses, right? You thought nothing would be more awesome than having kids. Right? If you can just get that better job with that better pay, it's all going to be good. And then you realize they want 60 hours instead of 45. But the presence of the Lord, boy, there you find peace. And so Daniel, he's thankful. He's thankful. Verse 11, then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying, asking his God for help. And again, we don't know what the help was. I'm sure it was just God, give me fortitude, give me focus, give me strength. And so they went straight to the king, and 
reminded him about his law. Did you not sign that law for the next 30 days? Blah, 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 tattle, tattle. That's all they're doing. And if the person breaks it, they're going to be thrown to the lion's den. And the king said, yes, the decision stands. It's an official law. That's how we do it. Yes. And then they told the king that man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah. In other words, that Jew boy. That's what they're saying. They're very anti-Semitic. He's ignoring your law and you. He still prays to his God three times a day. Verse 14, hearing this, the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. Isn't that the weirdest thing? king isn't mad at Daniel. king is so impressed by Daniel, he goes, why did I make that stupid law? He didn't know he was getting sucked in with some plot, and so he's trying to think of a way to save Daniel. So if you ever thought, oh, you know, the king's throwing him to the lion's den because the king's angry. No, the king likes Daniel. He wants to figure out a way to save Daniel. So what the king does is basically gets all of his warriors together and says, is there a loophole for this law? That's what he's looking for. That's why he says he spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. The king is not a god. Once he signs a law, he himself is bound to that law. So he needs lawyers, but the lawyers can't help. So in the evening, the men went out to the king and they said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law and to the Medes and the Persians, no law the king signs can be changed. In other words, it's sundown. He needs to go to the pit of lions. These guys were into swift justice there, the Medes. Busted that day, executed that night. How, wow, that's swift. Verse 16, so at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested, to be thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. Uh, You see this weird little scene here with the king where uh, he's watched Daniel's faith. He's watched Daniel's loyalty, and so he's just thinking, man, maybe his loyalty to his God will bring or net him loyalty from his God, and it's going to be okay because, again, the sentence is not that Daniel must be executed. The sentence is Daniel just needs to go to the lion's den overnight. If you survive that, paid in full. Get that? You don't, if for some reason the lions just aren't hungry, and you make it to the next morning, your debt's paid in full. Right? So the law could be fulfilled if Daniel can stay alive. That's the idea. And so he thinks maybe his God will rescue him. It says in verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seal of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. So they put the chains, they put this clay all over the chains, and all these ring stamps are placed into it. So Darius couldn't, in the middle of the night, sneak Daniel out because all the other guys would know somebody broke the seal. Right? So it's just like, it's just sealed. It says, the king returned to his palace and he spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Right? So he just says, you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask Daniel's God, my God, all gods everywhere to do something. Because again, he's just kind of a pagan guy that doesn't know what he should do, but do this. And he's thinking, maybe God will. Perhaps... God might. Then verse 19, very early the next morning, the king got up and he hurried out to the lion's den. And when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Right? So he's like, maybe, are you there? Verse 21, Daniel answered, long live the king. I love that because again, what was the accusation? He's not loyal to the king. What's his first thing? Yo, king! Long live you. 
He's loyal to the king. Then he says, My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. I love this, because again, what was the indictment? He prays to his God, therefore he should be thrown to the lions. And then what happens? His God shows up and closes the mouths of lions. And he says, and not only that, I have been found innocent. What he's saying there is, you know what? I was really wanting my God in prayer. I didn't do it to be obstinate. I wasn't just trying to stick it to you by praying. I really wanted God, and I've proven that. Because sometimes, boy, when somebody comes against our faith, you know what we want to do? We want to get more obstinate against the person than we want to pursue our God. We're being just more disrespectful to those who don't hold to our Christian faith than we are passionate about the God that we serve. He says, no, I've been found innocent. He says, I don't even have a scratch. Not a scratch, right? He says, the king was overjoyed and ordered the Daniel to be lifted out of the den. And again, not one scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. He trusted God for big things to deliver in big ways. Our problem as Westerners is that we sometimes think, yeah, God just doesn't do that stuff today. Because we've already decided he doesn't do that stuff today. So that we don't always see him act because we miss out. But he is delivered. Delivered. Reminds me of earlier in the book of Daniel, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They do make the king mad. The king really does want them dead. They get thrown into a fiery furnace, but instead of igniting, they're just chilling and walking around in the fire. Right? And not that the, the, the bindings on them are burned off, but their clothes aren't burned, their hair isn't burned, their clothes aren't singed in any way, nothing. They come out, they don't even smell like smoke when they come out. In the same way they came out of the furnace, Daniel comes out of the pit of the lion's den, and here's the lesson you need to know, live, and learn. They were saved in those conditions, but they weren't saved from those conditions. Did you catch that? They were saved in those conditions, but not from those conditions. There's going to be times that God puts you in the fire, and he makes you fireproof. There's going to be times that God says, no, I'm going to have you go to the pit. You're going to face the lions, and then I will pinch their mouths shut. We so often think that the only way God is going to deliver is if I'm never in the environment to begin with. Yet all of those men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and David, had to go into the environment, had to face the fear, had to actually dip into that place where you think at the last second, it's not going to be a deliverance for me, but God will deliver me to heaven. That's what they're thinking. And then God delivers big. Again, there will be many things you and I face in life. And we're going to be like, well, why, why isn't God delivering me from this sickness? Why isn't God delivering me from this situation? Why isn't God delivering me from this problem? Well, he might deliver you in it. And by delivering you in it, it will deliver a lot more in your character than just the needs. And so Daniel is rescued. And verse 24 says, And the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. And he had them thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and their children. Again, we just don't tell that story over there. The lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Now you go, well, that seems kind of cruel. Well, here's the deal. It was illegal under penalty of death for you and your family if you sought to manipulate the king with a law. These guys rolled dice. They knew what they were risking, and they lost. 
But then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He's not a dead God. He's not an idol God. He's a living God. And he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He's a living God. He's a saving God. And he performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel. So he's a personal God from the power of the lions. I mean, this is a big decree from the king about Daniel's God. So this pagan king that doesn't know better is now proclaiming some of the most profound and potent truth in the Bible. His kingdom will come to ruin, but God's never will. And he says, I want everybody to know that. It says, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. And Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Man, not only were these guys faithful in a hard situation delivered in the context of the problem, but then they prospered afterward. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about this. It says, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised to them. He shut the mouths of lions through their faith, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped the death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. When you read that, you go, man, that is the fruit of faith. God delivers. God rescues. God overthrows. God strengthens in faith. And I know some of you go, but, 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 but. Not everybody has a happy ending. Well, the writer of Hebrews agrees. He says, By faith, though, others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hopes in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and others were, had their backs cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawn in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated, for they were too good for this world. Yeah, some people in faith are delivered, and some people in faith are delivered up. But it doesn't change how we are to act or respond. Because we are not supposed to have faith simply to get out of our problems, but we have faith in God. Who knows better? And nobody knows better than God, because of then where Hebrews goes, you get this whole, here's these victors of faith. He goes right into chapter 12. Therefore, since we have all these people that were delivered or delivered up in faith, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd, huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarded its shame, and now he's seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. When you go, man, I don't know if it's fair. I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's just. I don't like this life, whatever else. This doesn't seem like faith is getting me anywhere. He says, look to Jesus. Stop looking at the problem. Stop looking at the injustice. Stop looking at the dangerous future. Stop looking at the life and limb risk and look at Jesus. It goes back to presence again. I keep bringing it back. Be thankful. Be prayerful. Start looking. Stop looking around. Look forward. Look forward. I'm just guaranteeing you. I will spare you a great degree of grief in life if you stop 
camping on problems and start looking at your Savior. Strip off, he says. Get naked for Jesus. That's what he's saying. Literally, the runners would strip naked and run the race. And so, strip off. Look to Jesus. He suffered more than any of us will suffer. He was a truer and better Daniel. He was a truer and better Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel, he was sealed in and came out unscathed. But Jesus, he didn't come out unscathed. He still bears the wounds. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were in the flames, but they were not burned. But Jesus, he suffered wrath for us. He is truer and better. And so I implore you, man, look, look, look to him. Seek, fight, find him. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the reminder that peace is only found in looking toward you. Hope is found in looking toward you. Living in this world with all of its problems is always going to be complicated, and yet in that we are to live for you. So Jesus, show us. Show us yourself. Ignite passion for you. May we look to you, the author and finisher of faith. Instead of looking around thinking why things won't work and why they're wrong and why they're broken, may we look to you who is right and altogether true. We love you. We thank you and praise you in your name.